0: Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management.
1: This week on Product Love, I talked to Jirdre Kerr, Chief Product Officer at The Skim, so one of the topics we discussed was alignment within product organizations. Often companies, especially ones that are growing quickly, I think experience this sort of imbalance between their product vision and roadmap, their company vision, and the real business direction and product direction. I think it's a challenge to get everyone to agree on these things, especially when that company's going through rapid scale. And often there's a perception of alignment that really isn't there. Deirdre believes that this alignment should be prioritized and that it starts at the top. And once the companies start to align on the same vision and strategy, they also need to start evangelizing within the product. So she brings up this idea of not only evangelizing company vision within your organization, but also the product vision and product roadmap throughout the company. As part of this, she suggests having team spotlight presentations or product brainstorms where all the departments are invited to contribute. So this all got me to thinking, how do your organizations get alignment and evangelize that within your organization? Are product managers responsible for facilitating that alignment? And are they the ones who should be evangelists for the product within the company, within the organization? Let me know your thoughts. You can reach me on Twitter at eBoduk, or you can reach me via email at eBoduk at Pendo.io. Well, welcome over to the product today. I am here with Deerja Core. Deirdre, can you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background?
0: Sure. So I've spent... Basically, my whole career in product development, Um, the first half of my career, I was in engineering. I worked at ESPN for a while. A quick funny story on how I started there is that I was majoring in something called industrial engineering and operations research in college, and I thought I was going to go into finance, which is what most people did when they were in engineering school at the time, and then ESPN came to campus. And I was a huge sports fan and I walked into this interview. I had no idea what it was for and I found out that it was actually for a software engineering job that I had not prepared for. Taken about three programming classes. That was the extent of my knowledge of computer programming and totally bombed this interview. But at the end of it, I basically told them that, hey, I love sports. I can pick this up. I've done some of these classes. I've done applied math. Take a chance on me. And they did. So I kind of, started out day one right out of college working as a web developer on ESPN.com, which again was like this total left turn from what I thought I was going to end up doing. And it was kind of the wild west at the time, because at that time, the web development team was just shipping code straight to production, um, just like really building some cool stuff. There wasn't a lot of eyes on it at, at the time compared to much later. So it was a really, really fun environment to learn engineering in a pretty renegade atmosphere. And then over the years there, I moved up in engineering, worked on a few different teams. I worked on some of the first mobile apps at ESPN. I was the only engineer on this mini startup that they started within ESPN called Grantland. And then I eventually moved into product management at ESPN when it actually became a thing there. Because until then, engineers were sort of functioning as de facto product managers, but the concept of product hadn't really existed. And so the last few years there, I was a PM. I saw the PM team go from just myself and a couple others to over 20 while I was working on an overhaul of the entirety of ESPN.com and really just had this, this cool transition there going from this like renegade engineering team to a full-blown product development team as I saw that happen at this very large company. And then I went from there and joined the skim when it was 10 people writing a newsletter. So it was basically the opposite experience. It was an early stage startup, joined right after the series A, And the last four years have been pretty incredible. Um, I've been working closely with the founders since then to build out new products and also actually grow product design and engineering from the ground up.
1: That's awesome. Great background. So talk to me a little bit about, um, (laughs) you know, moving from ESPN, which when you left a large digital entity, right, Uh, over to product at Skim, 10 people, huge change. What made you want to do that? What made you want to go from a huge you know, sports global sports conglomerate to a startup. And what was the transition like?
0: Totally. So I will say leaving ESPN was really hard. It I was building products at immense scale. Like we're talking hundreds, million uniques plus international properties. My last project there, I was working on ESPN.com, both in the UK and in India and in Brazil. And as a sports fan, I mean, it's the dream because not only are you working on something that you love working on, but sports fans are also the dream to build for. Yes, they complain a lot, but they also will do, will literally use anything that you create. For them. They're like the, the best users. And so the decision to leave ESPN was really hard, but I knew I, want, I, I just needed something completely different, a completely new environment, even a new space. But what's interesting is that I definitely wasn't looking to join an early stage startup. I was relatively risk averse, you know, I had a 401k, you know, I was definitely looking to go smaller, but definitely not, you know, 10 person series A company. I just wanted something different. And then this, one of those like hilarious serendipitous moments happened where a friend introduced me to the Skim founders. And funny enough, I had actually been reading their email newsletter for about a year already. Somebody had introduced it to me but I, they weren't even on my radar, right? I was like, oh, cool, nice little email newsletter. But um, I met the Skin Founders and we grabbed coffee And it was really funny because we walked into this meeting. They had no idea what product was. They thought I was a designer. Then they were like, oh, you're an engineer. Cool. You can do that. And I was like, no, there's this thing called product. So I kind of like spent a little bit of time educating them on what I did. And then I like flipped it on them. And I was like, cool. So what are you guys doing? I mean, you got this email newsletter. It's going great. You know, what are you looking to do? And then we just kind of clicked because uh, they kind of learned what product was. And then they pitched this bigger vision that they had. And the rest is history. I joined the skim totally out of nowhere, not what I was expecting to do. And it turned out to be kind of a dream scenario. Obviously the transition was definitely a shock. I mean, going from you know a 5,000 plus person company to a 10 person startup is like a culture shift. But at its core, it's that dream scenario for a product person because it was a mission and company that I was really passionate about. It had an audience of millions already that were obsessed with the brand and the company. So whatever you build for them, they will also eat up. And And then it was that opportunity to take everything that I had learned at ESPN, both the good and the bad, and figure out what my version of a product culture was going to be and what a team would look like and actually build that from the ground up. And that mixture of things is really, really hard to find. So it was a huge change and a huge shock, but I will say it was probably the best decision of my career.
1: Awesome. Awesome. So at at the same time, right, you talked about getting to ESPN and ESPN.com was relatively small when you started there. Is that correct?
0: Yes. Comparatively.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about what it was like there in the early days of ESPN.com, you know, like when you were talking about, you know, shipping code directly to production and compare that to what it's like at the early days of Skim, right? When you were 10 people, what's the same? What's different? I mean, other than what, a, a decade or so of time?
0: Right, exactly. Oh, now you're fucking me old. Uh, but uh, yeah, no, it's interesting because they're, they're, like you said, they're definitely similarities and uh, differences. So I think the key difference that's interesting is that when I joined ESPN and it was that like sort of renegade environment, part of the reason it was this renegade environment was because there weren't a ton of big looming business objectives on digital at the time. Obviously that has changed a lot, but at the time the cash cow was TV, right? It wasn't digital properties. And so the expectations of things like ad revenue, traffic, and, you know, just like the business eyes on the digital team weren't nearly as strong. And so, you know, something broke and like you fixed it. And, you know, yes, yeah, so, you know, your, your manager will yell at you, but like you didn't have the like huge expectations. And so it created this like really fun environment where, you know, you could just try a bunch of shit the skim while still a vernegade environment is very different when you're talking about a venture back company but also a very high growth stage company when i joined it already had a couple million daily readers and that was it was on hockey stick growth for the newsletter the while it's still a small fun environment the business expectations are there right because you're that growing company you're scaling and while we hadn't we had just started to make revenue from our first advertisers that was also living so i would say that was like probably the key difference even if it's like the environment was similar. But yeah, I mean, in terms of like the actual day-to-day working environment, I would totally compare them. I mean, being on this like small engineering team that was working on ESPN.com, but getting to pitch my ideas at the age of 21 and actually building them. One of my first projects there was this thing called the NFL Playoff Machine, where you could go in right before the playoffs and and kind of use this like little web app to figure out the different scenarios for the playoff picture. I pitched that idea and built it. And that that is a very start of Thing same with the skim. You know when we started, when when I started, even today, it's very much that startup. Like every idea is valuable, and any idea can be built.
1: I like it. I like it. So if you're going back to the beginning, when you when you were first at ESPN.com, and you said you could change one thing, or, or maybe you think, oh my gosh, I can't believe we did that. What would it be? I
0: think. And this is probably me putting my product hat on now, but I think uh, one thing—if if I look back on the first few years of ESPN—that that sort of user centric thinking and approach just wasn't there. You know, it was very much like, we're all sports fans, let's build the stuff that we think we should build. And that generally was successful. But the concept of looking at analytics, looking at the research, like talking to your audience, figuring out what you think would be like a truly game changing sports product to build, the culture wasn't quite there. So when I when I think about the end of my career at ESPN, when that was absolutely there, when PMs were a thing, when we were going down and doing user research at Disney World every two weeks, basically. It was so cool to see that evolution. And I always wonder when I first started um, how much more we could have built or how our strategy would have shifted if we had implied more of that thinking back then.
1: Interesting. So now at Skim, now, how about we just have a little bit of background? How big is Skim now as far as, you know, millions of readers?
0: Totally. So um, we have 7 million readers for, in our newsletter. And we don't share our numbers for our subscription app, but I can tell you it's a top three grossing news app in the app store. And we have 33,000 ambassadors. So we have a really, really strong audience and very loyal readership with female millennials who want to feel smarter by consuming our products. And that, And like I said, that growth has been truly incredible to be a part of over the past few years.
1: So you obviously have a lot of things to balance, right, as a head of product. How do you find that balance between your overall vision and strategy and some of the day-to-day tactics of keeping all of these people happy?
0: Yeah, it never really happens. <laughs> I mean, if anybody tells you they find the perfect balance, they're lying. But I think, you know, what I've, what I've tried to stay true to, even if the week to week doesn't totally shake out this way, is that, you know, at a high level, you need to kind of always be going in, in a little bit of a cycle. So there's the strategy, which is basically like the what and the why behind what the skin creates. And that's anything from incorporating our, our long term vision, innovative ideas that are coming from all parts of the company, the analytics that we're seeing, the research that we're doing, and the business goals. And that cycle while you know all the time you're thinking about strategy but that does tend to happen on that like recurring quarterly yearly strategic session basis you know and then in between those you're doing kind of here's how we make this happen which is how do we evangelize product thinking across the company how do we build alignment how do we make sure that the teams week to week in their sprints over the course of a month are working towards like the the goals that we've set on a quarterly basis and so you You know, you're always finding the balance between jumping between the two mindsets. But I do find that you're able, if you're able to set a a nice little rhythm behind kind of quarterly alignment on the objectives, then you can spend a lot of the rest of the quarter making sure the teams are properly aligned and working together. And you can find that right balance between the two.
1: Now, how do you take and how do you balance, you know, making all those critical decisions between you and the rest of your team?
0: So this one's really interesting because I think that, a topic that isn't often talked about that should be is actually the relationship and and alignment within a product team. We so often talk about product with stakeholders, product with executive teams, product with founders and CEOs. But what's really interesting is like the chemistry within a product team that is so, so critical. So my goal with our product team is that number one, everybody always has the right context. So I shouldn't be kind of holding the long-term vision and the roadmap close to the vest and just kind of uh, delegating it out into little silos to make sure that they just get to build their features towards that. We need to all be really aligned with what we're building, what the roadmap is, and what the long-term vision is. And then ultimately, my goal is that they are fully empowered to make their own decisions and actually defend them. And so the way we operate is that each PM has a general area that they own, and then within a quarter that they have a more specific objective they're working towards. And then along the way, I'm here as guidance, especially if they feel like they need more context and other perspective, also here to hold them accountable to their decisions, but ultimately they own their decisions. And as long as you have the right chemistry, sometimes we call it a little bit of inception, you know, they feel like they they understand the vision in, in my mind and the founders' minds. They know what they're seeing. They're able to properly balance those things and make the decisions in the day-to-day and the week-to-week of building those products. But it all comes down to aligning around that and making sure that everybody gets what we're working towards.
1: Yeah, I mean, aligning, but it also sounded like your team's very empowered.
0: Yes, that is huge for us. I, and I think that's been really important as we scaled because you are always playing catch up. Otherwise, if you're handing features to build to PMs, uh, then you, you can't scale yourself. Otherwise, you're not, you're not just doing strategy. You're, you're basically delegating tasks on a week to week basis. And so for me, it's very, very important that PMs are elevated to a level where they feel like they are accountable to the business, not just me. And they have ownership over that and they can defend those decisions along the way.
1: So to find those types of people, what do you look for in your hiring? Like what characteristics do you look for? What kind of background do you look for?
0: Yeah, it's really been interesting to think about PM qualities and things that I think are universally true and what are more specific to the skim. So I think there are a few things that I tend to look for. So one, which is definitely very true to the skim and its overall values is just hustle and drive. There's this get shit done mentality that I really expect of PMs that unfortunately doesn't, you don't always see, right? You see, especially when people are coming from larger organizations, you know, there's this concept of a PM silo, which to me is crazy, but exists where, you know, I have my designers and my engineers and here's the thing that I'm building and I have to build it versus what are all the other factors and things that may or may not need to get done in order for me to accomplish my goal. And so like a really tactical example of that is when it was just me and we were creating our first audio product, I learned how to edit audio for a few weeks and become an audio producer because who else is there to do it? And that's the type of kind of like hustle and drive mentality that I really value in PMs and is also something that we really value at the skim. The other is humility, empathy. There's something there around the role of a PM is really hard from a people standpoint. You are constantly dealing with different personalities, both on the team that you're working with and the stakeholders and kind of presenting yourself and, and with a level of empathy, but also humility about what you're doing is super important. And then the, the third is that I always try to talk to PMs about how you balance this concept of leading with conviction and kind of rallying a team towards a goal and, and bringing them along for that journey, while also being open to challenging ideas. Because the best product development team is constantly challenging each other, but that doesn't hold them back from moving fast, right? And so that the role of a PM in, in checking that balance is so, so critical. And that was a lot of like, you know, what quote-unquote people call soft skills. And that's that's for a reason. When it comes to more of the hard skills, whether you're coming from an analytical background, a more design thinking background, an engineering background like myself. I don't tend to look for one of those things. I think when people create product teams where they have a prioritized list of skills that they're looking for, then they're creating a single archetype of a PM that's going to hold them back. So as I've thought about building out my PM team, I've looked for complementary skills. So maybe one person's coming from more of that design thinking background. Maybe one person's coming from more of that engineering background. One person's actually coming from more of a content and publishing background, so they can bring that to the table. And then you start to build out a team that is complementing each other and learning from each other very organically in a way that is really hard to do when everybody comes from the same profile. And so that's been really, really important to me.
1: What about product principles and decision-making framework? Do you have one that guides you?
0: Yes. So I separate those two a little bit from a product principles standpoint. What's cool about the skim is that we are a very user centric company, just. You know, naturally, it's not just something that the product team kind of drives and owns. You know, the skin was founded with the user problem in mind, which is how do we get you your news in the most efficient way possible um, in a way that feels relatable? And so our product principles tend to also be company principles. So, you know, one thing that we're very bullish on is that we don't waste people's time. So our products should deliver information in a way that cuts through the noise, doesn't just add content for the sake of delivering you content. But really gives you just what you need to know and just the right amount of time to help you get on with your day with the new level of confidence. And that's something that is really cool to translate to both our content strategy, but to uh, to our actual design of our products to the way we deliver them, whether it's an email or a calendar or a push notification. It really helps us think outside the box in terms of the product experiences that we're creating. And then our decision-making framework is probably, um, you know, a little similar to, I, I think, what a lot of people do, which is you're balancing a lot of different kind of assessments, right? So one, we look at, well, how does this align with our vision? Does it get us to that North Star that we're creating? And how quickly does it help us get there? What is the user impact? Like, what is the size of the problem that we're solving for people? What is the business impact, both short-term and long-term? And then, of course, what is the actual effort it'll take to get this thing created and you know there's no like perfect algorithm that like spits out a priority order based on the assessment of these things but having that discussion amongst the leadership team or the product team around these different factors really really helps us align a decision very very quickly
1: yeah no algorithm you pump things into that says okay here's five different attributes, therefore build this.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, maybe we'll get there. But, you know, some of the beauty is in the conversation, right? Is that like, you know, the, the conversation around those things, even if it might be less efficient than that algorithm, gets so much more buy-in from all the people involved.
1: No, completely agree. I, I think <laughs> there's always a struggle, you know, to quantify that a little bit, especially for very, you know, engineering-oriented or background PMs. But it, it's difficult, you know, that conversation. It, it's difficult putting numbers on everything right there's Totally data informed right versus uh or doing things based upon data but maybe not quite uh using data as the end all be all all the time right there's context yeah. to that data exactly so we talked a little bit about alignment. You, you talked about not only the importance of aligning with the other parts of the organization, right? Executive leader, the sales, and marketing parts of the organization, but your product managers. How do you get everyone aligned on that vision and the strategy, and even the the short term direction of what you're going to get done in the next quarter?
0: Definitely. So again, you know, there's a nicely written out cycle and process for this. And then there's the way it actually gets done, which is a lot more conversations than that. But I think, you know, this does go back to a little bit I was saying earlier is that I feel lucky in that I think the beauty of the skim and what we do is that the company vision and the business vision is very directly aligned with the product vision. And so what I often find is that getting alignment on the company strategy and what we're working towards one year from now, three years from now, automatically translates into alignment on then the product roadmap that we're building in the next year. So I get a little bit of a benefit from that. But, you know, it is it is really interesting because it starts at the top, obviously. It starts with making sure that your leadership team, your executive team is sitting down and aligning on that vision before you talk about what the roadmap is. It's saying, what are we trying to build? What are those products in at a very high level? But also what does the business look like? What are our revenue streams look like? How do we prioritize these different things? And then working backwards from that, it's saying, okay, what are the key milestones to get there? And once you have a little bit of alignment on that, then it's a lot more of the kind of just evangelizing is what I like to call it. So whether it's you know team spotlight presentations, or what I really love to do is uh, when we do kind of blue sky product brainstorms, we bring people in from all parts of the organization, whether it's sales or editorial or marketing or ops, to make sure that they're contributing to building out kind of what the ideas and solutions could look like. So even we have the concept of a squad model that you know I think a lot of teams are doing now um, where you have kind of a cross-functional team aligned towards a goal. But our squad model actually extends beyond product design and engineering. So we have editorial embedded in squads, we have marketing embedded. Embedded in squads, sometimes even sales embedded in squads, so they feel really bought into what we're building. And so there's there's no like secret, you know, silver bullet to it, other than just making sure everybody's part of creating that vision and, and building towards it.
1: I like that. Talk to me a little bit about the rationale and the decision making behind putting, you know, expanding the squads maybe more than a typical product organization might into, you know, people from sales, marketing, content, et cetera.
0: Yeah, it it was definitely a a debate and it's something we've been playing around with because part of the reason to not do it is that, you know, when you contain it to product design, engineering, those are the teams that are working on that squad every single day. That is their sole focus and their kind of singular job, while an editorial person has a job day-to-day, they're writing. And so uh, they're th- them being on a squad adds a new dynamic to it. But to be totally honest, that's a tactical question on how we prioritize time and things like that at like a conceptual level. Uh, it was something we did off the bat because we felt like product at the skim is so much more... More than building features and interfaces. It's the core of what we create. So for example, content is our product at the skim. So the way I like to describe it is that a piece of editorial content, however, that ends up being delivered is the product. And then whether that goes into an app or a website or a social channel or a podcast, it doesn't quite matter as much as it aligning on like that core product. And so what that means is that editorial are the creators of our product, and they are our primary stakeholder in a lot ways when it comes to building and ideation and creation. So having them be a part of product development is a no-brainer. That's not even a question to us because they are the kind of creatives behind that. And then when you think about sales and marketing, um, even analytics or insights, or even, you know, somebody from the ops team, we tend to look at each squad and its objective and think about, you know, kind of who the, the primary stakeholders are. But then within those primary stakeholders, you know, who is going to actually be a key contributor to actually innovating with the team and problem solving with the team and what kind of uh, voices could actually uh, drive that forward in a better way. And that does often for certain squads tend to be somebody from these other teams. So we assess it on kind of a squad by squad basis to make sure that we're not just like creating these like 30 person (laughs) squads with a lot of kind of uh, miscommunication and bloat to them. And it's very, very thoughtful and deliberate.
1: I mean, that that leads me into my next thought. Like, How do you define the role of product then as your startup scales, like that squad stuff was very interesting. But as you scale, and as you move forward, how does the definition of the role of product change? And then how do you craft your PM teams and and maybe even your squads based on that?
0: Yes. So this has been kind of a fun question to constantly ask ourselves as the skim has grown over the past few years. Because when I started, product was very nebulously defined. So to the point where to the where I, when I started, we decided a product was just anything this game creates. So, whether it's an app, the newsletter, a podcast, even our Instagram channel was a product. And What I loved about that was that what that meant is that everything that we do came with that product mindset. So when it was a post that we wanted to put on our social channels or creating a new podcast, it was coming from that product thinking mindset of what user problem is solving? How can we do this in the best way possible? How do we define KPIs and all of that? The downside to that is that it then creates a lot of uncertainty around what the role of an actual product manager is, um, because then a product manager could be anything from you an know, uh, editorial lead you know, to uh, somebody who is just kind of operationalizing something to what we traditionally more define a product manager as, which is somebody who is kind of shipping and, and driving the creation of a product. And so since then, we kind of worked to define it as a separation, which is the product strategy is independent of... Of the role of the PM in the sense that the product strategy is the why behind everything we create. So that yes, that includes things like social, it includes things like audio, because everything the skim creates should be solving user need. And then the role of the PM is defined by the things that we create that are SCIM owned and operated. So while a social channel is kind of an editorial content distribution opportunity, we're not necessarily building Instagram, right? Um, and so, you know, the, the PM team owns the things that we are actually building as part of the Skim's owned and operated products. But what I've loved about it is that we have then created the concept of product stakeholders and other initiatives. So product has a voice. And when we think about social, we think about audio, we think about video, even if we're not actually creating those kind of consumer products in-house. And so it's created this really cool culture around product thinking across the whole organization and PMs have a very elevated role as a part of that. And then I think what's fun about that is that, to my point earlier, your requirements for a PM team are... Fun because it's not this like very narrow archetype. It is a, va- a vast breadth of skills. So it's people who understand content and editorial and anything from the creation process to the strategy of that advertising and subscription models you know, kind of obviously like, you know, design thinking and, and user instincts, but, and then obviously all the soft skills is a part of that too, when you're working with every part of the organization, not just product design and engineering, the empathy, the, you know, conviction, the stakeholder relationships are that much higher. So it's definitely a fun challenge.
1: Yeah. I mean, one thing you were talking about was like stakeholders, right? And and obviously a lot of different stakeholders involved and have a lot of different things that you think you should build directions you should go. And, you know, it's further compounded a little bit by, as you put it, the get shit done mentality that, that I think it's really important for product managers to have. But the concern there is like turning into a feature factory, right? Where yeah. you're, you're just shipping out all kinds of features almost immediately How do you make sure as that leader, how do you decide which features are worth building, which aren't, and make sure that you have that consensus, I guess, for lack of a better word, though I'm sure there's one out there.
0: Definitely. Yeah. So I think what we did properly with the squad model off the bat was manage expectations of what a squad did, because to your point, you can set this great framework for a cross-functional team, then their week to week could be all over the place and it could just actually introduce more voices in the process of prioritizing. And so the way I think about it is, you know, off the bat, when we implemented squads, we define them as a cross-functional team that is working towards a specific goal and they have autonomy to get to that goal. And so they are not, through the course of that quarter, taking in a bunch of feature requests and kind of outside random things just being thrown at them, they are—they need to hit their goal and they're accountable to that goal. And so they define their roadmap towards that. And yes, there are voices on that squad, like editorial marketing or sales to contribute to that, but they have a very singular focus. And we got alignment off the bat and still have that alignment from the whole company and the leadership team around that because what it's proven to do is it helps us move faster. And more importantly, it helps us move towards longer term bets faster than kind of the quick hit things that you might spend six months doing. And then you pick your head up and realize that you haven't done anything to actually drive the business forward in, in the long run. And then so separate from that, we do have kind of intake opportunities for people to surface either ideas or pain points that they have that are then taken into consideration by leadership for either a future objective for a squad, or if it's like a small piece of work, we have a concept of off-squad work that where that type of work can be incorporated into. But we do have this great alignment around making sure that squads are working towards big bets and big objectives and not just checking off lists of Trello cards.
1: Yeah, I like that. I, I like how you approach that. Now, one thing we talked about is you guys use jobs to be done, the jobs to be done framework, correct? Yes. So how does that fit in and how do you apply that to the skim?
0: Yeah, it's actually part of the way we do our kind of discovery process, which is that, you know, like I said before, the skim is this like audience obsessed company. Everything that we do and create starts with a problem we want to solve for our audience of female millennials. And the best part about that is that that's even how the company was founded, right? Our first flagship product, the Daily Skim, the email newsletter was created because our founders saw that the morning TV or nightly news broadcast was not serving. What users needed in order to get their news, it was not accomplishing, you know, the the core mission of, of what it needed to accomplish. And so they started the newsletter to introduce a new way to solve this problem for people. And so we do kind of make sure that everything that we do, whether it's a feature, whether it's a big product bet, whether it's a you know a whole new initiative, that everything starts with um, a discovery phase and also a clear purpose and job to be done for female millennials. And that needs to be backed up by research and data. And so I think my best example of this is actually still the way we think about the daily skim, because if you don't use jobs to be done, then the daily skim is an email newsletter, right? And that's great. But the way we think about the daily skim is that the daily skim solves the problem of, Helping you understand what's happening in the world in a brief period of time in your morning. So you feel like you can go about your day like a informed and confident person. And so today that is solved with an email newsletter, but tomorrow that could be any product, right? And we think the daily Scan could expand to new platforms. We're all we're already testing it on Voice with Alexa and Google Home. And so our whole thinking around the Daily Scan is not it as an email newsletter product, but it as solving this like overarching need of how to get you started with your day with what's happening in the world. And so that's been really fun and, and helpful to consistently ground us on because otherwise you run the risk of getting too caught up into a specific product you have versus the problem that it's solving.
1: I like that. I think that's a good approach. So We talked about this a little bit earlier on, right? When you were talking about how you grow your product team, but I wanted to drill into it and and see what qualities you looked for or you think every product manager should have. Like if you you say this has to be a quality my product managers have, what are they?
0: Yeah, so I'll probably kind of repeat the two that I I really hold true to, which is hustle and humility. (laughs) And those two are really interesting combined, right? Because you could see what someone having... Absolutely have one without the other. But those are the two that, you know, are part of our quote unquote culture fit interviews where we clearly define what that means to be a culture fit as a PM. And we really look for that because that's what drives success here. The other thing that I really, in addition to what I've said earlier that I really love to look for is what somebody's quote unquote sweet spot is. So it's really interesting to me how PMs, especially now, are coming from so many different backgrounds um, and areas of expertise. It's getting broader and broader compared to when products first started out in the industry. And what I love about that is that I feel like everybody is just bringing something totally new to the table. And so that might be domain knowledge, right? It could be, you know, I'm like, I'm really, really uh, strong at this specific area, or it could actually just be an area of passion. So for example, for a while, I felt like i just had this great sweet spot around sports but also just like content consumption and understanding user behaviors behind that just spending a lot of my time thinking about that and how to kind of innovate in that space and that's what i brought to the table as a p.m you know and so i really love to spend time in interview processes especially just digging into kind of what is that like sweet spot what is that x factor that somebody's bringing to the table from a product standpoint that is something new for the team that adds a whole new perspective
1: So let's talk a little bit about the future now. What trends do you see in the future of product management?
0: Yeah. So I think first and foremost, the role of a PM is fascinating. I think the role is being defined more and more and differently in each organization in a good way. I think it's growing in terms of its responsibilities. It's growing in terms of the value that it brings to an organization and I've even seen product managers extend to playing more of your GM type roles, maybe not necessarily owning a P&L, but really, really owning the business of a product, not just the product development. And so that's been fascinating to watch. And I'm really curious what trade-offs that might bring to how we define the role of the PM organizational organization, how we set PMs up for success when it starts to become this very big, all-encompassing role. But I do think it's really interesting, especially, as I mentioned earlier, you see so many different backgrounds and different areas of expertise funneling to product management, especially I see this in New York a lot. Every product manager resume, I see a totally different background, which is really fascinating to me. So I'm excited to see that. Trend evolve and see if you know it ends up branching out into completely different categories of a product manager and different ways to define that and having organizations kind of choose what type of a a role they're interested in in, and having product play at the organization. Related to that, the second thing I see is that product more and more is in a leadership position, is at the executive level, is an early hire. And yeah, that's always been true to an extent for maybe, um, you know, your traditional tech companies, Bay Area, but I'm seeing that more across the board now. So even legacy organizations are recognizing the value of product at the leadership level. And so that's been really interesting to see, to see the makeup of executive teams, see when startups choose to make their first product hire and recognize the value that it can again bring to the business as it's running. The third is kind of a wildcard. So I watched this talk a year ago by Amanda Richardson, who is at Hotel Tonight about voice. And I think voice is fascinating. And she made this point that has really resonated with me and something that I have now been talking to my PMs about. And we've been kind of discussing a lot is that, you know, when you think about how technology is evolving, how the way in which people interact with technology is drastically changing, right? And so whether it's voice, uh, whether it's AR, you know, whatever technology it ends up being, the concept of what a product is and how to develop it is going to completely turn on its head. So, for example, when you think about voice, suddenly the instincts that PMs have built over the years around user interfaces and design instincts and the way they think about building products is completely different (laughs) because suddenly you don't have an interface, right? Or you have an interface, but it's a voice interface. And so I love the idea of product managers thinking about the abstract of what they do and having that ability. Adapt to the technology changing versus having it be too defined in a literal sense to kind of creating an app or creating a website. And so I think that trend is definitely a thing, as we all know, but I'm excited to see how product evolves with that trend.
1: Yeah, I feel like we could have a whole podcast about voice and its possible effects on user experience and products as a whole. One thing I did want to talk about, you know, since we have a shorter amount of time left than a whole podcast, you know, backgrounds. you, You talked about, you know, finding PM resumes from a lot of different backgrounds. Have you found any backgrounds that you think are better than others for PMs or is it more of a, a complement the existing team issue and looking for those soft skills across whatever background they have?
0: Yeah, I would say it's more the latter because I I really hate to pull out one thing because it depends on the company, depends on the organization, but also depends on what your existing team looks like. It's funny too because a lot of people think that I would value engineering (laughs) because that's where I came from. But honestly, it's an Achilles heel to me. You know, the hardest thing for me becoming a PM from engineering was flexing the other part of my brain, was kind of going and thinking beyond what can be done, (laughs) you know, uh, beyond and, and, and not being limited by that. So even from day one, I felt like Like, you know, while when a lot of companies were thinking that the best PMs come from engineering backgrounds, I really never believed that. And now that's only grown. Like, and so, yeah, I think at its core, I think there's core, you know, traits, like I mentioned, that I think are are critical to the success of the PM in any organization. And then the rest of it is building a complementary set of people.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I have an engineering background, at least by education, too. And I completely agree. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so let's finish this up by talking a little bit about you. What's your favorite product and why is it your favorite?
0: Okay. So this is kind of related to how I'm trying to think about how we can abstractly define product, which is that my favorite product is Disney world. (laughs) So let me, let me take you on this journey a little bit. So I think Disney world is the best end to end user experience, potentially ever created because they've done everything from these magic bands that just seamlessly uh, let you pay for things and get fast passes and get into parks to the actual digital products that you can use on your phone as you're going through the whole Disney World experience to the actual, obviously, IRL experience of the parks and the hotels and the restaurants. And it's this amazing journey when you like step into this literal universe that they've created to when you leave, uh, where it's every little detail has been thought of so and obviously i worked at espn so i was able to get onto disney a bunch and even do user testing there and really get into like how awesome it is and i do think it is like one of the most amazing cohesive end-to-end product experiences that has ever been created and maybe is created today and then the more focused answer to that if i will uh, is i've been recently subscribed to one medical and it has completely changed my experience with healthcare and i think it, the beauty of it is that it's so simple is that you know they've like kind of democratized access to nurses and doctors in a way that makes me actually kind of seek out quick advice or guidance or even set up appointments in a way that I never used to do. I was super lazy about that before. And in such a simple user experience, such a simple product with like such an attention to what the overall user experience is, is just a fantastic, fantastic product that they built.
1: So when when you launch product are you saying, "Hey, now that I've launched product, what are you going to do? I'm going to go to Disney World?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like I've always wanted a moment to say that, you know.
0: Exactly. In a
1: high school baseball game, what are you doing? Exactly. Now? Going to Disney World now.
0: <laughs> it's also like when the sports teams win championships, they go to Disney World. So yeah, same thing. Just yeah, to absolutely.
1: Back. That's that's where I pulled that inspiration from. You know? <laughs>
0: exactly.
1: <laughs> so I, I have to ask you, being a big sports fan myself, favorite sports teams?
0: Oh man, I like. I'm glad you asked. So I'm a huge, huge soccer fan. I am a. Avid paying member of the US national soccer team supporter club, the American Outlaws. So I've been to five World Cups now. I have traveled to see them and cheer them on to all ends of the world um, and just like am obsessed with international soccer. So that's my jam.
1: Awesome. Awesome. That's great. I must say, I had an affinity for your work with Grantland, right? Because I was—I oh, yeah. I grew up in Massachusetts, always a big Celtics, Red Sox, you know, fan, etc. All the Boston teams, though it's been uh, tempered a little bit by my time in uh, Pittsburgh and San Francisco, but still huge Red Sox fan, for instance. So uh, that's a kind of cool experience, taking what you know started, I guess, as a columnist and turned into a whole property, right? So that's totally uh, cool.
0: That's awesome. I didn't realize you were unique, Greenland. Yeah, it, just to quickly touch on that, I, I think that the my experiences there with the skin have been really interesting too the dots between because to your point, Grantland, Bill Simmons, like that was an obsessive audience. Like I used to read Bill Simmons's page two columns, printed them out and like read them on the way to class, you know, Uh, just had like a really loyal following and tapping into that was super fun. And those were long
1: columns too, right? So you had to walk the class.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. And also maybe almost got run over, like maybe shouldn't have been reading those on the way to class, but it was, it was fun. So yeah, super obsessive audience. It was fun.
1: Awesome. Well, one final question today for you. Uh, three words to describe yourself.
0: Okay. This is always hard. I'm going to take a crack at it. Passionate, weird, and nerdy.
1: I like it. I like it. <laughs> Thank you. I, I appreciate your time. This was a blast and I look forward to some future conversations.
0: Thank you so much. I'm such a pleasure to be on this podcast and to chat with you. Thank you. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on ProductCraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.